Luke chapter 17. For the record, I, I didn't record all of that, so I can't it can't be used against me. I waited until after I said all of that before I began recording. And so now I'm recording this part, and everyone who's going to be listening that wasn't here is going to say, well, what was he saying before? No one tell them. <laughs> That'd be our little secret. Be an inside joke. Anyway, so we are in Luke chapter number 17, and we're continuing our series that I've entitled Refocus. <laughs> and our desire, of course, through this series is we want to see Jesus more clearly through these accounts of the Gospels. We want to be able to get a better idea of who he is, of what he did, of what he was teaching, because our own preferences, our own ideas and uh, traditions and religion and different things has kind of uh, muddied the waters, if you will, about who Jesus is. Everybody has their Jesus or their form of Jesus or who they believe in, and it doesn't matter what people make into Jesus. We need to be making sure that the Jesus that we're following is the Jesus of the Bible, okay? It's not a, a matter of perspective. It's not uh, like they do today trying to say that morality is uh, based on whoever is uh, whoever you're talking to, that it changes. Or not. It's not a matter of my truth or your truth. Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he said he is, and he has done what the Bible says that he has done regardless of what anyone else thinks about it. And there's plenty of evidences, there's plenty of truths, there are plenty of proofs about that. And so as we're looking through this, we want to see Jesus for who he is. And so over the past little while, what we've been looking at here in Luke is Jesus is in the time just shortly before his crucifixion. He's in the last months of his life, and he is now traveling between the regions of Galilee and Jerusalem. He is making his way slowly to Jerusalem. He stopped for a bit. He was at a Pharisee's house. He had supper, and he, he taught for a good while there. He loosed from there, and as he was traveling again, he ran into the ten lepers that we looked at last week. He healed the ten of them, and only one of them returned to thank him. And he's continuing on that journey. He's going to go ahead through uh, Samaria where they're inhospitable toward him, and John and James want to call down fire from heaven. They're going to eventually make their way, as they're coming slowly, they're going to make their way to Lazarus' house, and they're going to uh, Jesus is going to raise him from the dead and these things. And he's going to get to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, and he is going to be crucified, he's going to be buried, he's going to raise the third day. That's the trajectory of where we're going. But as he's making this journey, he is teaching as he travels. Uh, he's not in an airplane, he's not in a car. And they're just slowly walking their way toward Jerusalem. They're staying in towns and cities for certain amounts of time. And uh, then they are uh, just winding their way there. They're not on any big hurry that they know of, but Jesus is doing things according to God's timeline. He will be in Jerusalem for the Passover in which he's going to be offered up. And so anyway, this entire journey is spent preparing the disciples for his departure, and it's also provoking the religious leaders. The things that he is teaching, the things that he is doing, does not set well with the hierarchy of the day, with the, the religious uh, cartel, if you will, of the day. And so as he is being kind to the uh, the ones that were outcasts, as he is healing those who are broken, as he is uh, showing mercy to the ones that they haven't shown any mercy to, as he is teaching things in line with God instead of in line with their religious traditions, they are becoming more and more offended by him. Mm -hmm. And this is going to lead them to crucify him. 
But we've just been kind of going through uh, the things that he is teaching, the things that he is telling, the things that he is doing here, and gleaning information from it, gleaning a little bit of uh, help for our day-to-day lives. And what we looked at last week is some of the marks of a disciple, what it takes to become a disciple. Because there is a difference between just being a believer, just being a Christian, and truly being a disciple, a follower, a student of Christ. Okay? And there are plenty of people who believe, but that's as far as it goes. They'll be saved, they'll end up in heaven one of these days, but their lives have just kind of been lukewarm, just kind of been uh, hanging around the outsides of Christianity, if you will. But then there are others that truly fall in love with the Lord, truly want to learn of Him, take His yoke upon them, learn of Him, and follow after Him. And He says, for those who are going to be my disciples, for those who are going to truly follow me, and learn of me and make a difference in the world and be used by me, there are certain marks they're going to have to have, certain things they're going to have to, to be. And the first thing that we saw last week is they're going to have to be merciful. The religious leaders of the day had no mercy. And he says they're going to have to be merciful, both on those who traditionally have no mercy shown on the outcast and on the broken, but also they're going to have to have mercy upon those who are offensive, those who have done them wrong. Because our... Our desire is an eye for an eye. Our desire is vindication. Our desire is if they wrong me, I'll wrong them back. I will do unto them as they did unto me instead of as I would have them to do unto me. But Jesus gave the example and he says, forgive them. If they offend you seven times in a day, forgive them seven times in a day. Not for their sake, but for your own and for the sake of the gospel. So we need to be merciful. We need to be faithful. Whenever they said, forgive, whenever Jesus said, forgive all these times, they said, Lord, increase our faith. And he showed them it wasn't a matter of how much faith they had, but what their faith was in. And if they were putting their faith in Christ, if they were trusting him to do the work in them and through them, if they were following after him, then God could accomplish great things through them. If they're trusting in their own abilities, if they're trusting in their own desire, their own will, they can do nothing without him. And so their faith needs to be in him. Third thing, that needs, they need to be humble because as the Lord is working in our lives, as he is renewing our minds, as he is transforming our lives, as he is using us to build up his kingdom and to work things in our lives, our flesh is going to want to run with that. Our flesh is going to want to take pride and arrogance in that and to be lifted up in that. And imagine, if you will, the disciples even, whenever God was using them as they were standing before leaders as they were taking on the establishment, as they were going out and had multitudes of people following them, it was because of the work that Christ was doing through them. And if they thought it was of themselves, they would have become proud. They would have become uh, really unusable. Mm -hmm. And so he says, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow after me, you need to be depending on me, but you need to also be humble. Whenever I'm using you, don't get puffed up. And then the last thing that we saw is that they needed to be grateful. And that was what we saw from the, the 10 lepers. And only one of them returned to thank the Lord. And for us as Christians, if we realize who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and that without him, we would have no hope. And without him, uh, we would be able to do nothing. That keeps us into a place where we are going to be humble. But it's also going to keep us in a place where we're going to be thankful, be grateful for all that he's done for us. And so don't lose sight of what he has done and who he is, or you will lose your gratitude, you will lose your humility, you will lose your mercy, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to keep all these things if we're to be a disciple. 
So today what we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at a passage that is often seen as difficult, it's often misunderstood, and hopefully as we look at it in context and in light of other scriptures, it will not be so difficult for us. Uh, the Pharisees have been growing impatient with Jesus. They're hearing him talk, they're seeing his miracles, they're seeing the multitudes that's following him, but what the religious leaders of the day were looking for, they were looking for the Messiah, but they were looking for the Messiah that fit their ideas. They were looking for God to do things the way that they expected, the way that they wanted it to be done, and Jesus wasn't doing that. He had the marks of Christ, or he had the marks of God on his life. He certainly had some of the the things that would have pointed to him being the Messiah, but their prejudices and their desires for him caused them to be blinded to the fact that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God. And so as he claimed to be the Messiah, as he did all these great works and was traveling toward Jerusalem, this would be a great time for him to come and show himself the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And they decided that they were going to press the matter a little bit. And they're going to come to him and say, okay, when is this kingdom going to come about? When is this kingdom going to happen? I want a time. I want a date. I want a place. I want specifics about this. And doesn't that sound like us a lot of times? Yeah. We start making demands of God. Do it my time, my way. Do it in the way that makes sense to me. And so they are pressing the matter. And they're going to ask him about this kingdom, being blind to the fact that the kingdom was already in front of them. They just couldn't see it because it didn't look like they expected. It didn't happen the way that they wanted it to. So let's look at Luke chapter number 17, uh, down about verse number 20 is where we'll begin reading. It says, And when he was uh, demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto, it, unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there, go not after them or follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first uh, must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, uh, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. And the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be up on the housetop, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be uh, two men in one bed, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray your blessings upon the reading of it. I pray, Lord, that you be with each person here. I pray that you would deal with them uh, each and according to what they need, according to your will for their lives. I just pray that you would uh, work in uh, in my mind and in my heart. Help me to say the things that is needful and accurate and true. I pray, Lord, that it would be helpful to each person here. I pray, Lord, that they would be encouraged, that they would grow in their walk with you. And Lord, I pray if there's one person here that don't know you as their Savior, they don't know where they're going to spend eternity, I pray that today would be the day that they would get that decided. Lord, we do thank you and we love you and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, what we see here is the Pharisees coming and making a demand of Jesus. Okay? And they are talking to him about his kingdom that is coming. And so just if you want a title to this, just having a little bit of fun, if you will. Uh, Joy to the world, the king has come. Okay? Good Christmas for you, right? And just like the song, uh, Joy to the World, is often misunderstood. If you actually listen to the words of it, it's not talking about Jesus' first coming. It's not talking about a baby, a manger. It's not talking about a cross. It's talking about a king that's coming and ruling and reigning. Joy to the world is a song about his second coming. And this passage that we're looking at today is talking not about the first time that Jesus came, but whenever he's going to return, when he's going to come again. And just as the, excuse me, just as the song is misunderstood, this passage is often misunderstood as well. And so in the passage before us, they demanded that Jesus, of Jesus when he would come, whenever his kingdom would come, and Jesus gives them a short and honest answer, and then he turns to his disciples and gives them a little bit more of a, a thorough answer. He starts to expound on the truth of his kingdom. And so we're just going to kind of walk through this passage, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say about his kingdom, okay? And so the first thing that we're going to look at in this is the king revealed, the king revealed. In order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. A kingdom is the realm over which a king rules over. That's simple enough, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. And the religious leaders of this day, uh, they thought Jesus was a bit confusing. We've already talked about this a little bit. But they thought that Jesus was confusing. They were seeing him in the, the power with which he spoke, with the abilities that he had to uh, heal the lame, to cleanse the leper, to cause the blind to see, to even resurrect the dead to life again. They seen the power that he had. They seen the ability that he had to move multitudes, that people were following him in abundance. There was all of this that was happening. He was able to speak with power and authority. He was able to inspire people, to get people to move. This was the kind of Messiah that they were wanting, one that can motivate the crowds that had power to do things, that had connections to God, but they were wanting a Messiah that would come and that would set up his kingdom, that would rule and reign from Jerusalem, that would overthrow the Romans, and that would uh, kind of bring them into this kingdom. They wanted, as the religious leaders, for him to be their boy. They wanted the Messiah to come and join their ranks to be what they were, but Jesus was none of that, and that was confusing to them. They already had figured out that whenever the Messiah came, he would come in their midst, that he would uh, take up the power of the Sanhedrin and of the priesthood and of the temple that was there at Jerusalem, and from there he would reign over the entire world. This is what they thought was going to happen. But whenever they looked at Jesus, though he spoke with the power and authority and did the great deeds and had the crowds, he was gentle, he was humble, he was poor. It says that the uh, the birds of the air have nests and 
Uh, the foxes have holes, and the Son of Man doesn't even have where to lay his head. Jesus was homeless, right? He was going from place to place. They said, this doesn't sound like the Messiah, and it was conflicting to them. Uh, and they couldn't figure out how in the world Jesus could be the king. The truth of the matter is that they picked and they chose in Scripture what they would believe and what they would hold to. They wanted the line of the tribe of Judah, but they didn't want the lamb that was done before his shears. They didn't want the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. They said, we want this guy. We don't want this guy. And so they had this idea of who the Messiah would be. And whenever Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they crucified him, right? And so the scriptures and the prophets told of both the lion and the lamb. And they also showed that the Messiah was going to come twice. And this is where it messed up the religious leaders. They didn't catch that in scripture. They just ignored the parts that they didn't like. And so the first time he came, he was born in a stable. He was laid in a manger. His life was humble and unassuming because he was the lamb and not the lion. Uh, he preached repentance and mercy and forgiveness. He healed the broken. He sought out the outcast. He challenged those that had hijacked the God-given religion to use for themselves. He did all of these things. He demonstrated himself to be the kind of king that they needed. And we find if you, you trace back through Israel's history, this was a continuing theme with them. Because if you remember, we studied this in Wednesday night, that the people of Israel demanded a king, and they got the kind of king they needed, uh, not they needed, they got the kind of king they wanted in King Saul, and he was a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. God gave them what they wanted. But in David, God gave them what they needed, mm -hmm. a shepherd, a servant, a humble king that would lead them to serve the Lord. And so whenever we find Jesus on this earth, standing before them in that day, Jesus was the kind of king that David was, without the sins and the hangups. Okay? And so Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that pointed to him. He did what no man could do. He spoke the things that no man dared to speak. Whenever he stood before them and said, I am the Son of God, no one else would speak that because he's the only one that can make that claim. If you go through the Old Testament, you look through the scriptures, you look through all the prophecies, there are hundreds of prophecies pointing to Christ and his first coming, and he fulfilled them all. There are still hundreds more pointing to his second coming, and he will fulfill them just the same. The king was revealed to them. He came, he did works, he did wonders, he presented himself before the people. He will later on come riding into town on the donkey. They'll be laying their clothing at his feet. They're going to be uh, laying the palm palm fronds in front of him, and they're going to be shouting Hosanna before him, and then a couple of days later, they're going to be shouting crucify him. And the king that come for the salvation of the world is going to be hung up on a Roman cross. He is going to say, it is finished, and bow his head, give up the ghost. He's going to die, be laid in a borrowed tomb for three days, and on the third day, he's going to rise victorious over death, hell, and the grave, proving himself to be the kind of king that we as human beings needed. And so as we look back throughout history, as we look through all of the scriptures of the Old Testament, we find the preparations for this king. We find all the prophecies, all of the pictures, everything pointing to the king that would come and our need for him. And yet these people missed it, and so many people miss it today. We go all the way back to Eve in the garden, and whenever God told Adam and Eve, he says, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. 
They ate of the tree and God says, in my mercy, in my love, I'm going to provide a substitute for you. I'm going to give an animal to shed its blood. And it set that precedent that death was the penalty of sin and God offered a substitute, a payment for sin so Adam and Eve could live. And so they offered up the animal. They clothed themselves in the skins of that animal. We come to the time of uh, the law. We find that the law provided for a substitute once again. God gave his law. He says, thou shalt not. And man says, I think I will. And God says, I love you. I want to show mercy on you. And though you have sinned against me, I'm going to provide an atonement. I'm going to provide a covering. And they would come with the animals into the the temple grounds and offer them up upon the altar in place of them because they sinned, come short of the glory of God, and God offered a substitute. And whenever Jesus came the first time as the king, he was the king who would lead his people, that would lay down his life for his people. The Bible says, no greater love hath any man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Whenever Jesus came, revealed the first time as the king, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He came to give them victory over their enemies, to give them life and give it more abundantly. And so the first time that Jesus came, he came not as a conquering king, but he came as the sacrificial lamb to purchase for himself a kingdom, to purchase for himself a people. And so that's the king revealed, but the king must either be received or rejected. And so as we look in this passage of scripture that I read this morning, they demanded of him when the kingdom should come. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. It's not something that is outwardly forced upon you. It's not something that you can see the king marching in with his armies and imposing his kingdom upon you. But he says, instead, uh, the kingdom of God is within you. It's not imposed on you from without. It is decided by you within. There's going to be the place for him to come as the conquering king one day. We'll get to that in a minute. But he says in this current age, in the time in which we live, God is not forcing his kingdom on us. He is not forcing us to bow. He's not coming as the mighty ruler that they were expecting because if he had come in that way, they would all be damned. But instead, he came and he gave his life and he offered up his kingdom that whosoever would believe upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, there is a choice. My kingdom is within man. It is a decision that you make. It is whether or not you will have me. It is something that you must decide. The kingdom of God is within you. That doesn't mean that, that God was within these Pharisees and within these religious guys, but it means that we have a decision to make. What will you do with Christ? And so he says, I'm offering up my kingdom. I'm offering to you eternal life. I'm offering for you to be part of my kingdom. Whose kingdom are you going to decide upon? Whose, uh, whose leadership are you going to follow? Jesus says in another place to these very men, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, he said, you are of your father, the devil. And the things that he has done is the same things that you're going to do. In other words, they have made their decision who was their king. We found in another passage, it says, no man can serve two masters or else he will cling to the one and he will hate the other. And this is what's going on to this day. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He stood before Pilate later on and Pilate demands of him. He says, are you a king? 
And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Else if it was of this world, then I would command my angels, they would come down and they would destroy this place. That's, just, that's the, the Cliff Notes version of it, okay? And so anyway, he says, my kingdom at this time is not forced upon mankind. It is decided in the hearts of men. And so we have a choice. Are we going to receive it? Are we going to reject it? What are we going to do with this kingdom? And we know that there are many people who have chosen to reject Christ. They get tied up in this world. They decide this is all there is to it. We're going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? But the Bible is very specific. We are not a temporal being. We are not here just for this life. It's not just a short ride, but instead we are created eternal. We have an eternal soul. We're going to spend an eternity somewhere, and we have to decide who are we going to follow? Where are we going to go? Who is going to be our king? And so as we look in this passage that I read, it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, and they drank, they bought, and they sold. They planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone on heaven and destroyed them all. In that passage, the things that it's saying that the people were doing are not bad things. Would you agree? Eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, buying, selling, planting, all these things. Those are not bad things. But what it's saying is they couldn't care less that judgment was coming. They couldn't care less that there was a God in heaven that they had sinned against. They couldn't care less that everything that they had was given to them at the hand of God, and they were just going about enjoying the things that he has given them without giving any attention or paying any mind to the God of heaven or the eternity that lay before them. And so as Noah went out preaching and proclaiming the truth before the people of that day, we have sinned, there is judgment that is coming, God is going to send a flood, he's going to overflow the earth, and they mocked him, they ridiculed him, and they said, Noah, you are foolish, you have no idea what you're talking about, and they just continued in life like it was going to continue forever, and Noah and his family went in the ark, the door was shut up, and the rains began to fall, and they realized that Noah knew what he was talking about. As Lot went to the people around the town in which he lived there in Sodom and Gomorrah, as he was going about and saying, God is bringing judgment on this place, and we have to get out of here, he says that he even went to his own family, and his family mocked, and they didn't believe a word that he said, and he left without them. Because these people had made a decision. We don't care about the things of God. We don't care about what... Uh, his word says, we don't care about the judgment that's coming or the eternity that's beyond it. We're just going to live this life for all that we can get out of it. We're just going to enjoy his creation and turn a blind eye to eternity. And we are going to reject that offer of mercy and forgiveness that he has given. You realize in the story of Noah that God had made Noah a preacher of righteousness before them. He went and proclaimed, he told the truth. He said what was going to happen and no one believed. Even if you take and look at the dimensions of the ark that was built, and by the way, it was a boat. It actually happened. It was a true story. It's not a fairy tale. Okay? And if you look at the dimensions of it, there was plenty of room for there to be many more people to come on the boat, but yet no one would come. And so as we are here today, the king has been revealed, but what are we doing with him? Have you received him? 
or are you rejecting him? What is the decision that you have made? Is he going to be the Lord of your life? Is he going to be the savior of your soul? Is he going to be the one that you're putting your faith and trust in for all eternity? Or is your hope down here below? Is your hope in this life that you're living? Have you paid any attention whatsoever to the fact that you are an eternal being that's going to spend eternity somewhere? And God has done everything possible to provide you a means of forgiveness and a way of escape but so many people in this world says, I don't care. Don't want to hear it. And they go on mocking. But the third thing that we find in this passage is that the king will be returning. The king is returning. See, they wanted him to come as a conquering king the first time. And I've already said, it's a good thing that he didn't. Because all of the world at that time was without hope. It is by the blood that was shed on Calvary that any of us have hope. It is only through and by his blood that anyone can be saved. And so the next time that he comes, he will come as the conquering king. He will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come with ten thousands of his saints. He will come on uh, riding a white horse, it says. He's going to come with the words of judgment in his mouth. He is going to slay those who have rejected and refused, those who have uh, decided instead to put their faith and their trust in this world and its king, which is Satan. The king is going to return. The flood did come, the fire did fall, and the Lord will come again, just as he said he did. And I believe the second coming of Christ is an extremely important doctrine. It's a, a future event, and it is the focus of this passage. And we find that Jesus is going to return with his saints, as I said. We can see that in Revelation chapter number 19. Verse 11 through 16. I'll go ahead and turn over there. Everybody still good? Mm-hmm. Revelation 19, verse number 11. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth make, or he doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so this skips us forward quite a ways. This is a future event. And I just want to uh, lay this out for just a little bit. The course of the future of the time. The Bible reveals to us how all things are going to go. How events are going to uh, transpire coming up into the end of this age. Everybody is fretting. Everybody is worrying as they're seeing things going on, wars and rumors of wars, as they're seeing uh, trouble in Israel, trouble in the Middle East and things. But the Bible lets us know that God has everything firmly within control and things are going to happen as he has said. There may be wickedness in this world. There may be wicked rulers. There may be all kinds of uh, turmoil and things. And that's not God's doing, but it is all going to come about as mankind is doing all they can against God, that one day he is going to come back 
and he is going to set everything right. He is going to judge the wickedness of the world. And people read verses and chapters such as Revelation 19 as it talks about him judging the nations and slaying the multitudes and things. But here's the fact of the matter. He has done everything that he can to reveal himself, to offer up himself, to make a way of salvation, to make a way of escape. And mankind continues in rebellion against him. And the only thing that he can do as a right and a just God is come back and bring judgment upon this world that has rejected him. Mm-hmm. And that is a future event. That's something that's going to happen. All through the Old Testament, that God had promised Israel, there will be a king that reigns. There's going to be a land that you're going to be given. You're going to rule from, uh, as the, the common Palestinian chant is at the moment, from the river to the sea. Israel has never ruled that land. They will one day rule. There will be someone of the seed of David, Jesus Christ, that's going to rule with a rod of iron. There's going to be all nations that's going to come to that place. Israel is going to be a beacon and be a light into the rest of the world. All those things are going to happen in the future. The king is going to come. He is going to rule. He's going to reign. But as such, as a righteous king, he must judge all nations in unrighteousness. He's going to judge them for their rejection, for their sin, for their wickedness, for continuing to reject and resist, even though he has made himself revealed, made himself known. He has done everything he can to save mankind, and they continue to reject, and he will one day judge. He will return. And so as we see that, as he's ruling, the Bible says he's going to rule and reign a thousand years. He's going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, to David, to all the Jewish people. And this is the event that all those religious leaders were desiring, but they don't want it. His return is necessary to uphold God's justice. It's necessary for God's word to be truthful. And it's necessary for the Bible to be right. It will happen, just as everything else has been fulfilled. The focus of this passage is Israel. It is God's promises to them, but where are we in this? The Bible says that Noah and Lot were removed before the judgment fell. Mm -hmm. Noah and Lot were removed. Before God could judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he had to take Lot out of the way. Before before the, the earth could be wiped out with a flood, Noah and his family had to be in a place of safety. And so one of these days, before the king comes, he's going to remove his people. Those are the ones that come with white uh, vestures, that come with, uh, with Christ whenever he reigns. He's going to take his people out of the way before he once again begins dealing with the nation of Israel and bringing about his kingdom to this earth. And that's a, a lot deeper study than what we have for today. So as we look at this passage, Jesus was revealed His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection shows us that he is the son of God, shows us that he's the rightful king. It shows us that he is worthy of our love and of our trust. The kingdom is within. It must be received or rejected. He's not forcing it upon anyone. It is a decision that we make. What will you do with Christ? And as I said, the king will return. Those who receive him, he's going to bring back with him. Those who reject him, he's he's going to come and bring justice on those who reject And so in this, God has a plan for this world already spelled out all the way to the end. And just as so much of Scripture has already been fulfilled, this too will come to pass. And the question is raised, what do we do in the meantime? As we look at this, he was revealed, he was rejected or received, and he is coming again. He will return. 
So what do we do until the time that he returns? What do we do until the time that he brings about the last things? And I think there's a little bit of uh, instruction here for us today uh, in the story of Lot and of Noah. I've brought them out several times from verses 27 and 28. What Lot and Noah was doing is they were warning the lost. That's what our place is. If you are a believer, if you have trusted Christ, if you have received him as your Savior, if you realize that he came and bled and died, if you realize that he is the rightful king and that he's coming again, why wouldn't we warn others? Why wouldn't we tell them? Could you imagine how horrible of a person Noah would have had to been if it was revealed to him that God was bringing judgment upon the world because of the sin and the wickedness of the world? How horrible would he have had to been to keep his mouth shut? Mm-hmm. Say, I'm going to build a boat. As long as my family escapes, I don't care what happens to anyone else. No, Noah was going out that 120 years he's building the boat. He's going out and telling everyone, and they're mocking, they're ridiculing, and he continues telling. Whenever Lot receives word, Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be destroyed. He's going about telling everyone, escape for escape while you can. Run for your lives. Yeah. They didn't listen, mm-hmm. but he was telling them. And so while we live this life below, we have an opportunity to tell folks, the Lord is returning. Yeah. He is going to reign. He has done everything possible to keep you from going to hell. He has done everything possible to give you an escape, but the choice is up to you. And so we have that obligation. We need to warn the lost. Another thing that we're told here is to not get too attached. If you look down at verse number 31, it says, In the day which he shall, or excuse me, in the day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down and take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Okay? In that passage, a lot of people try to apply that to the rapture, try to apply it to uh, the the Christians being uh, taken away, right? Whenever it talks about one shall be taken, one shall be left behind, they try to apply that to the rapture. That's not what this is talking about. If we look at Matthew chapter number 24, it's another verse, or excuse me, another passage that runs parallel to this. And what it is talking about is whenever the judgment comes in the last days, that there are going to be people who are serving God, and those who are seeing the judgment coming, excuse me, those who are seeing the judgment coming needs to flee away, needs to allow God to to bring about that judgment and not look back just like uh, Lot as he was escaping Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. We remember that story. Lot is leaving and his wife's heart is upon that place that God has judged. Mm -hmm. Her affections are on that city and she doesn't want to leave it. She loves it too much. Mm -hmm. And she turns back and it says she's made into a pillar of salt. Remember that? And so the idea is as God is judging this world, that our hearts, that our desires are not supposed to be so connected to this place. See, we have a hope outside of this world. We have heaven before us. The Bible says lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on this earth. And so whenever we see that, there is a risk for us as Christians in becoming too enmeshed, too entangled, in this world, of not seeing past this life, of trying so much to make a living down here, trying so much to accumulate for ourselves wealth and riches and pleasures down here, that we are not uh, aware of our future home in heaven, of our relationship with Christ. We neglect those things. And so he says, don't be so connected to this life that you neglect eternity. Don't be so connected to this world that you can't stand to see it go away. Because there is a judgment coming for it. 
And then the last thing that we see in this, and we'll be done, is to not be discouraged in the meantime. Because as we live in this world, there is so much sin, there's so much wickedness, there is uh, a lot of injustice, a lot of suffering, and it's disheartening, isn't it? You watch the news for a little while, you get depressed. You watch the news and you see people suffering. You see, uh, you see the tragedies that are going on in the world, people who are suffering hunger. There's disease, there's warfare, there's poverty, all these different things going on around the world, and we get discouraged. On top of that, you see people who are oppressive. You see governments and regimes that are oppressive, that are doing horrible things to their people and to those around them. We think of the situation going on in Ukraine, situation going on in the Middle East, and all these things around us. We say, Lord, how long? How long are you going to let injustice go by? How long are you going to let wickedness happen? How long before you set everything right? We know in your word you have promises. You're going to come down. You're going to rule and reign. You're going to be a, a good king. You're going to be a benevolent king. You're going to be a king of wisdom and of justice and of mercy. We know that you're coming, but how long are we going to have to be subject to the unrighteousness, to the wickedness of this world? So you can either fall into uh, the, the pit of pleasure over here, or you can fall into the pit of despair with the things that are going on. It just depends. People are prone to different things. But the Lord tells us here in chapter number 18, and I'm just going to kind of uh, give an overview of this uh, parable that he gives. I'm not going to read it for sake of time. But he says there was an unjust judge that a widow came to. She was being mistreated. She was going through all kinds of, of things. And he didn't care about her. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about what was right and wrong. But she kept coming and she kept coming and she kept coming. And finally, he gave her justice just to shut her up. Okay? He gave her justice just to shut her up. And the parable, what he was saying, is if an unjust judge is willing to give justice to a poor, disconnected, impoverished widow, how much more is our Father in heaven going to take care of his children? God's ear is not deaf toward his children. His eyes are not blind to the issues that we face. He is not hard of hearing and he's not hard-hearted toward us, but instead we have to trust him, his plan, his provision, and everything that he is working out. We can continue, and the Bible tells us here that he tells us that we ought to always pray and not to faint, not to become discouraged, not to become doubtful, not to say, okay, God must not care. He must not be there. He must not be listening. I don't know if he even exists. Mm -hmm. He says, don't get that way and become disheartened just because of the thing that's going on. Mm -hmm. In verse number eight, he says, I tell you that he will avenge him speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? He says, is anyone going to continue trusting him to do all things well? Are we going to become so discouraged we're going to become so disheartened because of the condition of this earth that we cease to trust him. And so as we close here today, we find that he came as a king. He presented himself. We have the opportunity to either receive him or to reject him. And in the end of things, he is going to come back and he is going to bring justice on this world. For all of those who are wicked and rejecting, he is going to judge. For those who have put their trust in him and have served him, he's going to reward. And so in the meantime, 
we need to be telling others, right. not getting too attached to this world, and not becoming discouraged because it's taking longer than we want it to. So that is my, uh, my encouragement for you today. God's in control. God's already let us know what's going to happen. And let's let him be God. So with that being said, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And we'll call it a day. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the day that you've given us. We thank you for your word that's before us, Lord. That joy to the world, the, the Savior reigns. And Lord, we just pray, ask you, Lord, help us, Lord, never lose sight of this fact that you are in control, that you do reign. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that don't know you as their Savior, Lord, that they would put their faith and trust in you. Lord, you came and you bled and died in their place. You gave the opportunity for them to uh, allow you to pay for their sins, and they don't have to pay for their own. I just pray that they would put their faith and trust in you. And Lord, we look forward to the day that you return, not for the, the judgment that's going to fall, but Lord, that finally all things are going to be set right. The the wickedness will be put down and, and righteousness will reign. We, we look forward to that day, but Lord, help us to be about your business. Help us not get too connected and help us, Lord, not to get discouraged. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.